Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, used the world as a testing ground for his watches, sending them to the most extreme locations, supporting 20th century explorers in their quest for discovery. As the 21st century unfolds, Rolex continues the legacy of its founder, supporting the explorers of today on their new mission to make the planet perpetual. The Earth is dependent on the individuals and organisations committed to finding solutions to preserve our home, if not for us, then for future generations. And with the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative, we're one step closer to a planet with this hope. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org. The famous mountaineer, George Mallory, was asked why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. And he replied, because it's there. A century later, if you asked an adventurer why they're attempting another fabled challenge to journey to the North Pole across disappearing polar ice, you might get a similarly blunt but very different answer before it's gone. I am standing on Greenland's ice sheet. And this is the sound of it melting. It was like a motorway of ice all the ice moving off this glacier. I've never seen anything like it. Chunks of ice are falling into the sea 30 times faster than before. The Arctic has been warming about three times faster than the global average, leading to a long-term decline in sea ice that's itself speeding up climate change. And in today's episode, I'll hear from the explorer and research scientist heading an all-female team in one of the coldest and most extreme environments on Earth. Because even as the polar ice disappears, there's so much still to learn. Whether it's modelling the future of our climate or assessing the impact of what's already happened, there is an acute need for accurate data and as much of it as possible. Too often climate is talked about in terms of a hypothetical future, but it's already not even our present, it's our past, it's our Mm. history. Scientists will also analyse how much soot-like black carbon is in the samples, and test the snow and ice for a material that's known to have a hugely damaging impact, especially in the world's oceans. The analysis showed that everywhere we looked for microplastics, we found them. 99% of ocean plastic is beyond the reach of our cameras in the deep sea, and scientists have now found the highest level of microplastics ever recorded. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Today we hear from a woman who's measuring Arctic sea ice before it's gone. Science in the Arctic often needs hardy adventurers out on the ice collecting samples and data. And in this episode, I'm hearing from someone who is no stranger to those extreme conditions and who is an eyewitness to the way that the top of the world has been changing. I'm Felicity and I'm a polar explorer, but also a climate scientist investigating particularly airborne microplastics in the Arctic Ocean. When not on expeditions, Felicity Aston splits her time between her native UK and Vigo Island in Iceland, where she lives with her husband and son. This award-winning explorer's first big adventure came at the age of nine, 
when her parents bribed her with sweets to climb what she describes as a modest English peak. But Felicity Aston's most eye-catching challenge to date saw her ski alone across Antarctica. That's over a thousand miles, a journey she was the first woman to ever complete. And Felicity told me that her interest and involvement in scientific research grew out of her polar journeys. I'm quite unusual in that I was involved in being a polar explorer and doing these expeditions in places like Antarctica and the Arctic Ocean. And then off the back of that kind of evolved this project to look at microplastics. It was while we were designing this project, this research project, that I sort of thought, well, could I could I do this? Could I be a candidate for doing this research? And so that's how it came about. So it's sort of back to front, really. Usually it's the other way around. So the Arctic, um, something people are, you know, listeners, readers may have you know, read news stories about, they may have seen some wildlife documentaries perhaps, but can you sort of give them a bit of an idea of what some of the changes we've seen in the Arctic have been in the last few decades? How would you paint the picture? Well, I mean, the first thing to say about the Arctic is to reinforce that it's not a sort of solid rock continent. It's a frozen ocean right up there at the north. And it's surrounded by land masses that we also refer to in that sort of catch-all phrase as the Arctic. So Arctic Canada, Siberia, Alaska. And the changes have been really fundamental, but they've also been really rapid. And that's the thing that I think is really key to emphasise is that when you see these images of glaciers carving into the sea, you know, that's a totally natural process. But the difference is, is that in recent decades, we've seen that process accelerate to a point where it's not something we've seen before or hasn't appeared in the climate mm. records before. So that's why it's of such deep concern. And the same with the Arctic Ocean sea ice. Since um, remote sensing records began in the late 70s, 1979. Satellites, right? Satellites, yeah. yeah. We've seen this gradual decline in the extent of the sea ice, but that's only half the story. You know, almost more worrying is that what ice is there is thinner newer and less stable than we have records of before. So you, you refer to sea ice as being first-year ice, which is ice that has formed just in the previous winter, and multi-year ice, which has been around for at least one summer. And that multi-year ice is the thick stuff that can be three metres thick, five metres thick, that you know nobody really knows how long it might have been hanging around in the Arctic Ocean. And that's the really strong, robust stuff that kind of acts as the glue that holds the whole pack ice that covers the Arctic Ocean together. And back in 2018, it was estimated that as much as 85% of that uh, multi-year ice had disappeared from the Arctic Ocean. Which is huge, right? That's <laughs> massive, isn't it? Yeah. So you're left with an ocean that's covered mostly in first-year ice. Mm. So first-year ice is maybe 30 centimetres thick, maybe as much as a metre. And so you can see that if now the majority of ice in the Arctic Ocean is this thin stuff, then it's going to break apart more easily, melt away more easily. And, and that's what's really worrying is because the likelihood is what is expected is that this is going to make the disappearance of Arctic Ocean sea ice even more rapid. That's yeah. a really good reminder because I think as journalists we often just focus on, you know, record lowest extent or, you know, just the, as you say, the area. You sort of talked about the big picture there of the Arctic. Presumably you've seen some of this up firsthand as well. Could you just sort of give an, maybe an example or two of, you know, how you've seen this in person? Yeah. Well, I mean, I hate to admit that anything I did 
and can remember was a quarter of a century ago because that makes me really old, right? But my <laughs> first sort of expedition to the Arctic was to an area of uh, southwest Greenland called Tasmiat Fjord. That was when I was 19 years old. And then back in 21, I was part of a sailing expedition called Team Umiak. And we went to the exact same fjord 25 years later. And we got there by sailing through channels that only recently have been free of ice and are now navigable every springtime. The, the real, I guess, poignant thing for me was that I wasn't surprised at all that you know mm -hmm. you go to the fjord and you look at pictures that you took 25 years ago and you can't recognise it as the same place. There's no ice, there's no icebergs, there's tiny glimpse of glacier in the distance and actually while we were out there, uh, rainfall was recorded on the top of the Greenland ice cap for the very first time. Um, that was quite a moment, I remember that. It should be snow, obviously, to remind people, right? <laughs> mm, but, you know, no surprise. This is what science has been saying collectively is going to happen for at least the last 30, 40 years. This was the future that was predicted and that's now what we've got. Maybe I'm clutching at straws here, but yeah, have we avoided some of the worst case scenarios for the Arctic due to some of the political efforts we've made? You know, we've had sort of three decades of climate summits and obviously things going on in the the real world economy, as people call it, you know, with businesses, have we avoided some of the worst cases that we were maybe expecting for the Arctic or not? I'm always very wary of painting too doom and gloom a picture because the story of climate, you know, we've got some really great successes in our past that I think we have to remember. So, for example, ozone. Do you remember the ozone hole that was discovered in the 1980s and we came together and there was the Kyoto Protocol, the Montreal Protocol, and we stopped the emission of the substances that were causing that seasonal thinning of ozone. And I mean, the ozone hole hasn't disappeared. Um, it hasn't healed up as fast as was originally predicted. It's still around. It's still a problem. But, you know, we we solved that problem. And I think we've really got to remember those stories when we're sitting down trying to tackle the problem of climate. But my own personal frustration is that we're not, you know, we know what's coming. So we've got to adapt to it. it. It just seems ridiculous that we're still sitting here going, oh, you know, if we all switch off our lights, maybe it won't happen. I mean, it's it's already happened. Yeah. <laughs> I keep saying about the story about the North Pole, you know, I mean, the last time someone skied across the surface of the Arctic Ocean from land to the North Pole was in 2014. And it's you know largely accepted that that's not going to happen again. And if you bear in mind that the first human being ever to undisputedly cross the surface of the Arctic Ocean and reach the North Pole was Sir Wally Herbert in 1969. So he was the first. It's now not possible to make that journey anymore. Mm -hmm. So in the space of, what, 50 years or so, uh, we've gone from the first to the last. And while people might not care that people like me can't plant flags at the top of the world anymore, I think the importance of that story of the North Pole is too often climate is talked about in terms of a hypothetical future. But it's already, not even our present it's our past it's our mm. history and you know i think if we start talking about it in terms of you know we're already at that tipping point some would argue past that tipping point then perhaps this would contribute towards creating a greater sense of urgency that so many people are frustrated that we've got the technology to sort this problem out we've got the ideas the innovation and the brilliance but somehow the will seems to be lacking and you know i'm not qualified to point fingers at exactly where that 
might be, but you have to think that sort of industry and governance and those kind of that level of authority, you know, that's where the buck lies, really. Mm. Well, it's good to remember the um, environmental success stories, as you say, with Montreal, but um, obviously... (laughs) As you pointed out there, there's been a, you know, it's not, um, it's one of my frustrations as well that climate gets talked about a lot in the uh, sort of future tense, as you say. It's something that's already happened um, and is happening. So I just wanted to just trace things back a bit. Where would you say your sort of passion for the Arctic and Antarctica came from? Hard to say. I mean, you know, I come from West Kent, you know, part of Southeast England that doesn't have mountains or extreme winters or anything like that. But when I was a child and it snowed, it was magical and it was a huge adventure and places that I knew really well were suddenly transformed into this whole new place to explore. And so maybe there was some sort of nascent connection between the winter environment and adventure and excitement. But um, I mean, really, it sort of kicked off with my first job after university. I was employed by the British Antarctic Survey, which is the UK's main government funded research program in Antarctica. And uh, I was posted to Rothera Research Station, which is the largest of the UK to research facilities in Antarctica. And I was posted there for what was then the standard length of contract. I think it's slightly more flexible now, but then, you know, you signed up for two and a half years. So you signed up for three summers and two winters uh, without a break. It's a long time in an extreme environment, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it is. So now looking back, I perhaps point the finger to that experience because I got to see Antarctica on days when there was nowhere else in the world I would rather have been. But I also got to see it on days where, frankly, I would rather have been anywhere else in the world than down in the dark with a skeleton and crew of 20 that I didn't have any hand in choosing so you can imagine how that goes how did it feel when you first arrived in Antarctica what was that like ah it was almost a sense of euphoria I remember the first time that I traveled just a short distance away from the base on my own for the first time I was going out to take measurements from a snowstake array that we built just outside the station and uh, I just remember being on a snow machine sort of driving across this beautiful, pristine, smooth perfection of an Antarctic landscape and feeling like I just wanted to scoop it all up somehow. And it it really felt euphoric to be there, to be witnessing this that was somewhere so different. And um, I think Antarctica is one of those strange places that has the ability to kind of alter your perspective. You know, you feel changed by having witnessed this. And perhaps the, the reason for that is because there is no human footprint there. I mean, you know, very light footprint now, Mm. but, you know, nothing really obvious. So it's somewhere completely other, like this kind of blank canvas. A rare sense of being sort of out of human society. Exactly. And it, it gives you this really sort of odd perspective. For me, it shows us how tiny human beings are and insignificant. And yet it also demonstrates how brilliant we are because even though we're so tiny and insignificant there we are you know not only surviving this environment but understanding it and understanding where we are and our place in the universe and that's pretty incredible for a tiny little species like us so you talked about that trip and you talked about the work you did in greenland sort of at the start of your career as you sort of look back over the arc of your working life what what sort of project would you single out that you're most proud of and and why? I think I'm almost always most proud of the project that I'm involved in at any given moment. You know, right now my head is full of this project that I'm doing right now and I feel really proud of it. And that's why I keep going with these projects to the bitter end is because I get that sense of motivation from the fact that I derive so much pride from it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's fair to say that the Arctic has been much more obviously affected by climate change than Antarctica, which has been relatively insulated partly by winds and other factors. 
but just to focus on the Arctic a little bit, how much do we really understand about what's going on up there? You know, you mentioned we've got satellites and I know there's this cool mosaic expedition that went out a little while ago to see what's going on in winter, which we don't know so much about because people aren't generally up there. How, what do we really know about the Arctic? Mm, well, this is one of the things that really intrigued me about the Arctic because my exploration career, if you like, had been mostly focused south down in Antarctica and that's where my heart always was. And then back in 2016, I spent a summer going backwards and forwards between the North Pole and Murmansk in, in northern Russia on the world's most powerful ship, this huge Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker, which was totally sort of Cold War era-esque and just brilliant. But uh, it was my first real kind of time spent in the Arctic Ocean, really sort of seeing it. And, you know, in my head, from my scientific background, I knew that this environment was so fragile and was literally disappearing in front of our eyes. And yet, when you're in amongst it, it's so powerful. You know, the forces of nature on display in the middle of the Arctic Ocean are incredible. And uh, I mean, this huge ship would have to reverse and repeatedly thump at a particularly big bit of ice for maybe half an hour or more before finally it would make its way through. I mean, just incredible. But even though I'm looking at all of this, I was aware that there were still some really basic questions that we didn't understand about Arctic Ocean sea ice. And I took part in a citizen science project that was happening off of the ship. And the questions that we were asking seemed really quite basic. You know, how salty is the water directly underneath uh, the sea ice and how you know quickly does that change with depth? How big are the melt areas? How old is the ice? Uh, you know, really quite basic questions, I felt. And so I started looking into it more closely and realised that, yeah, there's an awful lot that we don't know. And that's because access to these really remote regions is really difficult dangerous and expensive. So most of the information that we have has come from remote sensing, has come from satellites. And there's a lot you can tell from satellites, but they have their limits. There are some things that you can't. And so there have been expeditions, like you mentioned, Mosaic, fantastic expedition, but they are few and far between. So when you look at data records, it's very sporadic. It's often quite opportunistic. Um, it doesn't follow any sort of set structure. And that makes it quite difficult to make really good understandings about mm -hmm. that environment. I mean, I think people listening to this might be thinking, well, I get why you, Felicity, are interested in going up there and gathering data, you know, it's of interest for a researcher. Why, why, why does it matter for people who are living hundreds or even thousands of miles away from the Arctic? Yeah, I used to get asked that question a lot more than I do now. I think the COVID pandemic really was such a strong lesson in how connected we all are and how connected our planet is. In. And I think people more readily now see the planet as one big unified system. And, you know, th this makes my job sort of in my background as a meteorologist this was something that was very evident to me because you'd literally watch weather systems swirl around the planet and you'd see that, you know, if it's cold in one area or high pressure in one area and low in another or hot in another, then that has a direct impact. And with climate change, it's exactly the same story. You know, if you step out of your front door this morning and it's pouring with rain or you're up to your ankles in flood water or it's scorching hot in the middle of February, you know, all this weather patterns that we're experiencing... There's a direct connection between what's going on in the Arctic or what's going on in the Antarctic or anywhere in the world and what you're experiencing outside your front door this morning. And I think people why is that? understand because of, that more Because readily. of patterns going on, because of weather patterns high in the atmosphere? So what sort of, you know... Yeah, so, I mean, for example, with the Arctic Ocean, so the ice loss, if you don't have 
ice, which is generally kind of white or light coloured, and instead you have the surface of the sea visible. When you have radiation sunlight coming from the sun, it's more readily absorbed by things that are darker. So the sea is going to more readily absorb all of that radiation. And that's going to increase the temperature of the sea, which is going to increase the rate of melt of the sea ice that's mm -hmm. sitting on top of the sea. So then you've got warmer seas. And if you've got warmer seas up at the top of the planet, then that could disrupt the circulation patterns in the water. So ocean currents, things like that. And we really are affected by ocean currents that come against the shore of wherever you live. Uh, that affects the climate across that entire landmass. And similarly, sea temperatures also affect things like atmospheric circulation, particularly down in hurricane territory. You know, the warmer the water you've got, the worse and more frequent the hurricanes are going to be. And wherever you are in the world, if there's a massive hurricane somewhere, you are going to eventually feel the effect of that no matter where you are. So there's all sorts of ways this affects the climate, the temperature, the conditions, wherever you are on the mm. planet. And of course, that then has consequences that you might not even have thought of. Mm. For example, the scarcity of fruit and veg in our shops at the minute, that's a direct consequence of weather in a different part of the world and yet that's having an effect on whether you have blueberries in your porridge this morning or not. So, you know, we are so interconnected and it's an increasingly connected world. So the connection between what's happening in the polar regions and what's happening in your day-to-day -day life is just going to become more and more apparent. Mm. I mean, this is before we've even talked about things like exploitation of resources. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Arctic, you have to say that the Arctic is very different from Antarctica in that in the Arctic there is a nature population. This place belongs to people and has belonged to them for generations and they have a right to determine what happens to their sovereign territory. So, you know, when as scientists of the international community you turn up and say, oh no, no, you can't dig for emeralds and rubies and gold and precious metals in your newly exposed rock territory, you know, a lot of people, in my opinion, quite rightly are saying, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, yeah. you spent the last few centuries doing exactly that with your territory, you know, why can't we do that with ours now that we have the opportunity? So, you know, the situation in the Arctic is a lot more complex, I think, than in Antarctica. I mean, we've got the wonderful Antarctic Treaty, another success story that I think it needs to be talked about more often, where an entire continent was set aside for peaceful international scientific research. And that was an agreement made in the 50s, which isn't a period of time known for its tolerance and understanding <laughs> of forward thinking. And yet, you know, it produced this amazing agreement that is still, you know, it's not perfect, but it's still going strong after mm. all these years and is doing a, a pretty good job. It would be more difficult to have something like that in the Arctic because you do have an indigenous People. population yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. that have different uh, rights yeah. over that area. I'm talking to the British explorer, author and climate scientist Felicity Aston. She leads the Before It's Gone or Big North project, gathering quality scientific data from across the Arctic, and most recently in Iceland, with Felicity and her colleagues traversing Drangajökull, the country's northernmost glacier. But the focus now switches to the very top of the world, with the team planning to journey to the magnetic North Pole via Arctic Canada, a route chosen from a diminishing number of options. 
Well, I mean, it's no longer possible to ski from land to the North Pole anymore because of the ice conditions and more importantly because you can't have the logistics that you need in order to make that ski journey. It's too dangerous for sort of planes to be flying around the Arctic Ocean anymore. So uh, you can only make partial journeys. We'll be collecting snow, ice and water samples which we'll bring back to the UK and also send some to America and those samples will be analysed for various things. I'll be analysing them for microplastic content. So I'll be looking for really tiny little fragments of various plastics in these samples. And the reason why that's interesting is because that plastic that I find in the snow in particular will have come from the air rather than from the sea. So we're quite used to the idea of marine microplastics, pollution floating around in our oceans. But it's only really been in the last handful of years that attention has turned to the possibility that microplastics are airborne and are in the air that we're breathing. And there's been a few studies in remote glaciated areas like the Alps in Tibet, mm. uh, even on the summit of Everest now, they, they took some samples. And they're finding microplastic, which is likely to have been deposited from the air rather than by any other means. And so that opens up a whole new sort of area of investigation, sort of how prolific is this? Are we ingesting it? And alongside this, there's been a lot of studies about microplastic content in our bodies, in the human body, and what impact that might have. Because it's important to say that the microplastic material itself is not necessarily the problem. A kind of bigger problem in terms of human health is that that plastic often has lots of additives when it's made, when it's manufactured. And those additives tend to be chemicals that are toxic to human beings. So if we're ingesting microplastic, that plastic could be acting as a sort of transport mechanism for toxic materials to enter our body. And they're studying now what possible impact that might have. But it's quite frightening. You know, recent studies have found microplastics in our blood. They found it in human placenta. And of course, the inference there is that perhaps babies are now being born with microplastics in mm. their system. And there's a lot of studies about the potential neurological effects that these additives might be having on our bodies. So there's a, you know, a, a sort of imperative from a human health point yeah. of view to really work out what the scale of this problem is yep. because so unless you know what the problem is you can't start to try and solve it so there's some self-interest here as well i want to come back to the microplastics in a bit actually but um first of all just sort of explain who's joining you and how much Give a little bit of a sense of how much planning's gone into it. Well, my wonderful team, who are five women from across the UK, France and Ireland, who are not professional explorers or scientists, but feel compelled to kind of contribute in some way. And so they've signed up to do this expedition where rather than getting lighter, your sledges get heavier every day as we collect you know, kilograms and kilograms of snow, water and ice. And then rather than just, you know, concentrating on getting yourself and your, your kit to the North Pole in the quickest space of time. They're sort of stopping regularly on the ice to collect all these samples in uh, the best possible way. So I, I have huge amounts of respect and gratitude <laughs> for my for my team of six that are coming out to the, to the got, ice with me. Got you, got you. It sounds like a particularly awful marathon. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and just give a sense of the sort of resources that you need for this and maybe a little bit about how Rolex is helping you on this particular project. 
Now, it's been an epic sort of mission of planning. So polar expeditions always take, you know, a couple of years to put together, not just because they're so complicated logistically, but also that the funding needed is huge. You know, quite rightly, the polar regions are expensive places to get to if you're going to get there safely and responsibly. And so we're very fortunate to have the support of Rolex and a small team of sponsors who really genuinely want to help us understand this environment and complete the scientific project you know it's not just about taking some pictures at the north pole it's about helping us make this journey in the way that we need to make it in order to get the most value and the most worth out of this journey because there is a sort of central hypocrisy in this you know in order for us to get to the north pole we've got to use dirty helicopters <laughs> dirty planes you know so our you're going to need fossil fuels to get yeah, there you can't, exactly. can't get there or survive there without them no and so you know we have to justify our, our presence there and so we feel very fortunate to have sponsors with the integrity yeah. of rolex to help us do that so we started this project back in the early months of 2020 mm. and we were building up to get to the North Pole in firstly 21, April 21, because there's only a small three-week window in April when you can access this part of the Arctic Ocean. Earlier than that, it's too dark, too cold. Later than that, the ice is already starting to move around so much that, you know, it's cracking apart and it's not a good idea to be up there. So we've got this small window and in 21, of course, COVID was still, um, it was impossible to get round those international barriers against travel to, to get ourselves up there. So we had to kind of pick ourselves up and replan and focus on 20. 2022 and then 2022 three weeks I think it was before we were due to fly out uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and you think well what impact has that got on uh, polar exploration but all of our logistics were routing out of northern Siberia and the ground crew were a mix of Russian and Ukrainian personnel so clearly that just wasn't tenable so at the very last minute that got cancelled so we very quickly pulled together a brilliant plan. You were asking me about what I am proud of. I was mm. proud of that. You know, on starting from that place of total catastrophe, we managed to pull together a really great expedition in Svalbard and collected some really great data from that. So <laughs> the patience and tenacity and resolve of my team and, you know, everyone that supports us is uh, is really quite impressive. So your project Felicity in the North Pole is called Before It's Gone. Why is it called that? Well, we were trying to think of a name that would try and emphasise the urgency of what we're doing. So we came up with Before It's Gone. And we mean that in maybe a handful of years, it won't be possible anymore to ski to the North Pole. So one of the reasons why we want to make this expedition now is because we're not sure how much longer we're going to have the opportunity to do it. So Before It's Gone. And it also comes up with the uh, initials big, which we thought was quite cool. <laughs> Fair dues. <laughs> and uh, so Rolex's Perpetual Planet Initiative is obviously important to your work, but why is it important to other sort of environmental work and research around the world? The Perpetual Planet Initiative is wonderful because it's got real integrity. You know, Rolex is giving real resources to some fantastic people who are out there doing really innovative projects. You know, not only does the relationship with them bring us 
resources, but it brings us a bit of credibility as well. You know, it means that somebody has picked out what we're doing and said, this is important and this is impressive. And that's wonderful and can help in all sorts of ways. But I went to uh, an event in London where I got to meet some of the other Rolex laureates and, and people that are running projects supported by the Perpetual Planet. And it was such an amazing gathering of people because there was a total absence of doom and gloom. You know, there was such a sense of excitement and hope and optimism. I think all of that comes from feeling that you're doing something. You know, if you are feeling that you're just helpless in a situation, uh, that's quite a demoralizing place to find yourself but everyone in that room was doing something was involved and was making a contribution and it gave this really amazing kind of buzz to the whole thing so it's wonderful to regularly meet people like that to reinvigorate your own sense of commitment um, i mean i know people are going to be fascinated by that you mentioned this is unusual in that you're you know going to carry more weight as you go along just just give people a little bit of an idea of the sort of physical challenges of it is it about aerobic fitness strength <laughs> what Give, give people a little sense of that. Yeah, you know, polar exploration. You often hear polar journeys described as ninety percent mental, ten percent physical. I'm not. I'm not sure I agree entirely with that percentage, but it is so much more about your motivation and what is going on in your head, and also the strength of you and your team and you and your support. So we have great sponsors, um, including Rolex, but I also have amazing support at the National Oceanography Centre. So I know that I'm being sent out with a really great plan and really great resources and support. And then my team, you know, we've worked together now for up to three years together. So we have a huge amount of confidence in each other and that all helps to build up your own confidence as well. And I think that's got so much more to do with whether you're successful or not mm. when you're in that polar environment. But the main thing about the Arctic Ocean, the first thing that hits you is the cold. I mean, you step off that helicopter and the cold hits the back of your throat. I mean, it could be anything down to sort of maybe minus 40 or so centigrade, which if you work in Fahrenheit, that's all right because it's the same temperature, the scales meet at minus 40. And you start to sort of cough. So you try and speak to the person next to you and you're, you're coughing and it makes your eyes water, which of course then freezes in your eyelashes. So your eyelashes are all frozen together. And it, it, we refer to this thing called Arctic shock where in those first few moments, maybe even the first couple of days, your brain is telling you that it's impossible to cope with this. And it's this sort of fight or flight response. It's you just want to get out of there. And it's a real mind over matter thing to kind of calm yourself down and say, look, you know, you can deal with this. You've got the training, you've got the preparation, you've got the kit. But then you're faced with this landscape where, you know, navigation is totally mind bending because you're heading generally north, but the whole, what feels like ground under your feet is moving and it's not moving in a common direction or at a common speed. It can be going in a different direction or different parts of it can be moving in a different direction and then at any moment it might just split open and reveal open water something we call leads and in other places different areas of ice are pushed together to push ice rubble big boulders of ice up on top of the ice and we call those pressure ridges and these things can be as tall as a room and maybe kilometres wide. And there's no map for any of this. You know, you, you don't know as you head off towards the horizon whether you're suddenly going to come across open water or big mounds of rubble. And, and when you enter these pressure ridges with you and your team and your kit, you don't know if you're going to be able to find a way out or whether you're going to have to retrace your steps and maybe ski alongside the pressure ridge for a bit mm. to find somewhere better. So 
there's a real, I mean, we've all experienced for ourselves how difficult it is to deal with uncertainty and the unknown over the last few years. You know, when things were getting cancelled left, right and centre and that was so frustrating and demoralising. Well, imagine that in a really intensive kind of 10-day period because that's all you've got, 10 days. Mm. It's really, the pressure couldn't be any higher. And this is before I've mentioned the polar bears. (laughs) The list just goes on. I can be here all day. It's really really interesting to see here about the sort of mental side of it. I don't suppose people wouldn't necessarily think about that so much. I mean, you were, I think, 11 years ago, I'm right in saying you were the first woman to cross Antarctica solo. I mean, give me a sort of brief flavour of what that was like and the lessons that you learned from that that will help on this trip. I I thought I'd prepared really well for that journey, but the first few seconds as the plane kind of left me on my own and it really sunk in just how isolated I was, I realised that I wasn't prepared for it at all. People talk about conquering fears. I don't think I ever sort of conquered that sense of fear of being totally responsible for my own well-being. But every day I found a way to continue in spite of it, using various coping strategies that changed over time. You know, there wasn't just a one fix and then you're good to go. It was all the time the challenge changed in its aspect. And so your response to that challenge had to change. So it was one big lesson in remaining flexible and trying to remain in tune with how you are working and what the problems are and and trying not to be blind to problems that are emerging and that you'd quite like just to sort of ignore and forget about, but, you know, facing them and, and finding a way to deal with them. Before I went to Antarctica on my own, I sort of made the assumption that I was essentially me, like a sort of gingerbread man cut out of these are the values and strengths and weaknesses that make up Felicity mm. and that is intrinsically me. But I realised on that journey that that's not true. I am actually the space between the people that I'm surrounded by, you know, be that influences of people I admire or people I work with or people I spend a lot of time with. And it made me a lot more wary on return about what I choose to allow to influence me. You know, you think like the chatter on the TV or on the radio, you know, that it doesn't really matter. It's just all bubbly background noise. But actually, I think a surprising amount of that actually filters in. And so I've become a lot more choosy about what I allow myself to listen to, Mm. who I talk to, you know, who I go to for advice, because I realise that, you know, I am just a sum total of everything that's around me. That's really interesting. Intrinsic. You were saying earlier on, you were talking about the difference between first year ice and multi-year ice in the Arctic and about how that's one of the reasons things seem to be speeding up in that part of the world in terms of the changes. I, I guess, does this trip feel more urgent than previous ones? Yes, because I'm not sure if there will be an opportunity to do this again. The last time a team skied to the North Pole was in 2018 and that was me with a team. We were up there in, in 2018 and five years later, and it's our first opportunity to go back. And how many more years will we have before it's not possible to access this part of the world in this way? And then our only option for getting this kind of on the ground data is expeditions like the Mosaic expedition that we've mentioned several times. Um, and that's a huge multinational, multi million mammoth of an effort. So how many expeditions like that realistically are we going to be able to pull together? And you can see how very quickly we're running out of time to understand this environment before it's gone. You know, that really worries me. The thought that my son might not be able to 
ski through Arctic Ocean sea ice and experience that environment or ski across a glacier, that makes me very sad. Mm-hmm. And just um, explain a little bit, you mentioned about the microplastics that you'll be sampling for up there. I think you're also looking at black carbon as in like soot that could have been produced in a power station, you know, thousands of miles away and carried there just to give me a little bit more detail about what you're actually doing when you're there. Yeah, so some of the samples are going to be sent to America and uh, our scientific partner, Dr. Uliana Horodsky, she's going to be analysing those samples for black carbon. And she's been looking at the distribution of black carbon across the Arctic region because the source of it is the incomplete burning of fossil fuels. So some of the sources are totally natural, things like forest fires, whereas other sources are completely anthropogenic. So things like shipping or industry. I mean, you could argue that forest fires maybe are anthropogenic in their in their cause too now. But the importance is that black carbon absorbs radiation much more effectively than other materials, and particularly in the Arctic environment, you can imagine if you've got this kind of near white or white snow cover or ice cover, and then you have a big distribution of what is very similar to sort of soot particles all over that snow or ice, then that snow or ice is going to absorb a lot more radiation from the sun and is likely going to heat up or change more rapidly. So it's important that we know what's the distribution of black carbon is in geography sense, spatially, but also over time, so temporally too. And we don't really have a lot of information on that across the Arctic. And the thinking is that this stuff is literally just getting blown up there by the wind. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the sources and pathways of black carbon into the Arctic, there, there's been a lot of work done on how heavy metals such as lead have got up into the Arctic and looking particularly at sort of atmospheric circulations and how that's very seasonal Mm. so from summer to winter it changes like the main source is either North America or Europe and it's sort of all blown up there Uh, so a lot of this work is kind of piggybacking on that because the assumption is you know if this is the main atmospheric pathway of heavy metal pollution into the Arctic then it's likely that the black carbon that's produced in the same source region is also being carried up in the same way. But I don't believe that we categorically know that. It's one of the things that people are looking at. We need to find mm. out. And, and I mean, so you go out there, you, you have this incredible feat of endurance, you come back with all these samples and then you look at the data you get on black carbon and microplastics. What does it hopefully help tell us or learn? Yeah, well, it's it's really frustrating, isn't it? And I'm kind of learning this myself that as a student researcher... I'm just providing this tiny little droplet of contribution and yet the questions are so huge. You know, I want to answer everything and I want to look into everything and investigate everything and you can't. You have to do your one little bit really well. So no matter what else is happening in this whole bigger picture, you at least know that this one pixel has been done to the best of your ability and is totally robust and, you know, is is good data. Is it too late to make a difference to the Arctic or not? I think it depends what you mean about making a difference. I suppose I mean, I'm thinking st- the sea ice, the, 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 <laughs> the wildlife that lives up there relies on the sea ice, so on. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I always think about Sylvia Earle, the famous oceanographer. I'm going to totally paraphrase her here, but she, she said something about, um, yeah, we've lost 50% of the biodiversity in the oceans, but that still means that we've got 50% left to save. I think with climate, it's the same answer, really, the same thought that... Yeah, it should never have got to this point. But here we are, 
So now we have to focus on limiting the damage and also focus on adapting to the future that we know is coming. You know, I would love to see in the next decades that there's a lot more thought going into what will happen to climate refugees? What will happen to our food supplies? What will happen to our supplies of vaccines? Because we're going to need them at different times and mm. in different ways. Um, you know, what happens to the way that we live so that it we limit the damage as much as possible? We start thinking differently about the way we use resources mm. and our whole attitude to our planet. I think, you know, the last few decades we collectively have been going through this shift in our mindset of you know the seas are not infinite the the globe is not infinite in fact it's extremely finite and we need to be thinking differently you know a lot of the talk and focus is about you know reducing emissions this that and the other which is obviously vital but why are we so bad at adaptation you tell me i've got no idea it's it's really frustrating i because we are a brilliant species you know and we're survivors we, we've got the technology, we've got the know-how. Why aren't we using it? You know, you, you have a freak weather event and then on local news channels particularly, they'll be like, oh, what's going on? This is, you know, since record. And you're like, well, we know what's going on. It's the climate change that people have been banging on about for, you know, the last, the last few decades. This is what everyone said was going to happen. Um, but we still seem to be perennially surprised. Yeah, that's a good and point. I don't understand that either. <laughs> I've got no idea. If, if people are listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I really like the sound of what Felicity's doing, planning to do up in the Arctic. How can they support you and the expedition? Yeah, well, we've got a website, bignorthpole.com, and they can follow our progress when we're up on the uh, ice, but also they can find out more about the science and the scientists that are involved in the project as well. So hopefully a bit of a springboard to, you know, look at other projects that are all aiming towards the same ambition, which is to understand more and contribute to this larger whole. So mm. great. And, and and in the spirit of the, you know, can we still do stuff? Is there still hope to sort of reverse the black soot and microplastic pollution that we're seeing in the Arctic? Is there still hope to do that? Well, you know, every every morning I go into the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton and there's a whole heap of people in that building that are working towards solving not just microplastics but all sorts of problems with our ocean. And, you know, then I go somewhere like the Royal Geographical Society and listen to talks of people that are going out and doing amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, and so I refuse to believe that there isn't ways in which we can make things a whole lot better you know that's what we've done throughout history and i'm pretty sure we're going to continue to do that so i remain totally hopeful cool and just um taking a really sort of bird's eye view <laughs> as much as possible i suppose are you hopeful for humanity's future given the environmental challenges we're facing today i'm not thinking just the arctic here but all of it <laughs> Many times I hear things saying like, oh, you know, we haven't got the same spirit of adventure that we used to have. You know, we're not Shackletons and Scots anymore. It's not exploration I mean, age. That's yeah. total rubbish, you know. <laughs> I mean, just look around. I see no dimming in humanity's quest for knowing what's over that horizon, our sense of curiosity and also our sort of compassion and wanting to make things better. You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, the British explorer and climate scientist, Felicity Aston MBE. 
This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. The producer is Danny Garlick. The series producer is Anya Pierce. The production coordinator is Oliver Adamson and the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on The Times Radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. For nearly a century, Rolex has championed pioneering explorers who have shed light on the world and pushed the boundaries of human endeavour. Today's explorers are no exception, but they have a new focus, to make the planet perpetual. The Earth, once a playground for discovery, now needs our help to protect and preserve the natural world. Rolex supports the individuals and organisations who are protecting our world and inspiring generational hope as a part of its commitment to a perpetual planet. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org.